0: Life in North America is becoming increasingly lonely, and this trend is impacting all areas of our lives, including our physical health. So much so, in fact, that the United States Surgeon General recently issued an advisory on loneliness, characterizing it as a critical public health concern. But my guest on today's program says that that report and its recommendations fails to grapple with the drivers of our loneliness epidemic, including economics. Brendan Case is the Associate Director for Research at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. His response to the Surgeon General's report appears at Compact Magazine this week. Brendan Case is my guest today on Lean Out. Brendan, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the program today. You published a powerful piece yesterday at Compact Magazine, Reacting to the U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory on Loneliness. Um, Before we get to your essay, you are the Associate Director for Research at Harvard's Human Flourishing Program. What is that program? And can you describe for us the work that you do advancing it?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, So the Human Flourishing Program is a Uh, A smallish research institute in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at at Harvard University. Our our twofold aim is to study and promote human flourishing and to develop systematic approaches to the integration of knowledge from across the disciplines, which basically means helping the social sciences and humanities work together in in fruitful, skillful ways to to advance the the work of our first aim, which which essentially is to uh, conceptualize what a good life looks like for most people, to understand its components, key constituents, and then to to better understand what core pathways to a flourishing life are again for most people on average so we spent a lot of our work is devoted to to understanding how key institutions um like marriage and family or religious participation or work uh, education uh service as as pathways to a life that's that's not just subjectively uh pleasant you know a, a happy life or a satisfying life but also a life that's filled with With meaning and purpose, a life that's shaped by character and virtue, Um, a life that's characterized by deep social relationships. And that's, that's in, in our view, what a genuinely flourishing life amounts to.
0: Mm. I was so interested to read about that. And I do want to come back to that later on. But first, let's let let's talk about the Surgeon General Advisory. Uh, Vivek Murthy argues that social isolation is, is a critical public health concern. And the report notes some startling data spanning mental health rates, healthcare spending, work absenteeism, community safety, and talking about this much discussed fact that uh, lacking social connection can increase the risk of premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. This is a sobering report, even for those of us, I think, who have been steeped in this data for some time. You argue in your essay for Compact that the Surgeon General basically misses the boat here. You call this paper uh, a cargo cult. What does that mean?
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So a a cargo cult, it's a label for a a family of sort of apocalyptic religious sects that grew up in in uh, Melanesia, you know, in the South Pacific, after the the retreat of the U.S. Navy after World War II, should have had brought sort of un, unprecedented material prosperity to this, you know, up to that point quite isolated region, and and they vanished, you know, quite quickly. The bases were closed down, and the ships disappeared uh, with their cargo, you know, as the as the so, some some of the islanders described them. So the most famous of them is on the island of Vanuatu, uh, where a uh, group mobilized by you know a single sort of uh, apocalyptic religious leader built essentially built a fake airfield they built airplanes out of out of wood and palm bronze, you know and they built air traffic control towers and they would man them They would sort of go through the motions of uh inhabiting a, a u.s military installation in the hope of of an, in, in some way recalling you know this 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 now vanished world and so so the conceit of the essay is that the same kind of Essentially, magical thinking is in, is is evident in in a lot of the Surgeon General's recommendations for for how to address this epidemic of of loneliness and isolation. I mean, he's absolutely right about the. I mean, the report the report is quite good, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm describing the the current state of affairs and uh, how how critical the situation really is. But the recommendations that he offers, to my mind, m- most of them not not all of them, but but most of them are are unserious. In in a way that really merits comparison to building wooden airplanes in the hope of luring back the U.S. Navy. I mean, it's just not. This is a the sort of thing you do if you don't really understand what what's driving uh, the the, or if you you don't understand or or, or are unwilling to come to grips with. Uh, maybe I won't I won't speculate about you know the state of his mind. But if you if you if you are are not reckoning seriously with what's bringing this this crisis into being, um, so. It's a somewhat tongue-in-cheek way of accusing the report of, of of a degree of superficiality, which I think is disappointing in our highest-ranking public health official.
0: Mm. And in your essay, you draw attention to a couple of key facts that I want to repeat here. Roughly a third of Americans live alone. Marriage and birth rates are at historic lows, and religious affiliation has fallen you write that, quote, the report reflects a startling lack of interest in the actual drivers of contemporary social disaffiliation, as you've just talked about. Walk us through what these drivers are on the economic side in particular.
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of good work done in the last, in the last, I mean, let's say 30 years even, but especially in the last decade on, on this issue. Robert Putnam's work is seminal in this regard Bowling Alone and later books. Most recently, the book I draw on most heavily is uh, Michael Lem's recently published book *Hell to Pay* uh, about the 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 way that the depression of wages essentially uh, in the U.S. economy is 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 undermining our social fabric as a whole, uh, not not just our economic lives, but but unraveling our social lives. And the basic thesis, the throughline of 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 all of these works. I mean, there there's important disagreements, of course, among all these authors, and and I don't mean to don't mean to mash them, you know, into a single just into into one 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 lump, you know, to serve my own purposes, but. One important area of agreement uh, among these authors is that a critical driver of social disaffiliation, um, which is a trend that has been ongoing in this country since the 70s, essentially, as far as we can tell, and and accelerating across a number of across a number of dimensions in in recent decades. But a critical driver of social disaffiliation is the declining economic prospects of of the, the median American worker. And the causal the causal pathways are manifold here, so it's not a simple story to tell. But, but effectively, the basic idea is that a necessary condition—it's not the only thing that matters—but a necessary condition for most people to to find a place uh, within a, a, a rich and life-giving social fabric is to achieve the ability to 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 do meaningful work for decent pay at the household level it doesn't mean everybody has to work by any means you know and i think it, in in lind in particular is quite quite critical it's quite critical of the move towards uh, full employment you know the idea that every able-bodied adult uh, needs to be needs to be working no matter how many tiny dependent children they have for instance uh, in their house so so it's not not a question about the issue is not that you know working for pay is a is a sine qua non for for everyone to have a meaningful life but but economically, you need to be able to to find your footing in the world. Uh, so, I mean, for this is this is particularly important in general for for men even still, uh, because there there are um, there is a pronounced double standard which endures today. I'm not, and I'm not using that in a pejorative sense. It just is a descriptively a double standard whereby women tend to care a lot more about the economic economic prospects of their potential mates than men do. Uh, so, women women rate men's economic prospects much more highly, and considering them as as uh, uh, candidates for uh, husbands, you know, than men do in considering women as candidates for wives, and this is called this is called the problem of men's marriageability. So men men in general who if if uh, men's economics economic prospects are are collapsing as they as they have uh, across large section large large segments of American society, this is driven in large part but not only by deindustrialization essentially. So the the and which is driven in turn by By trade policy by immigration policy to some extent by automation perhaps you know so you know as it as the 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 pathways which used to provide pretty clear routes for people to go say from high school into a unionized potentially lifelong career you know in manufacturing say as those have collapsed the the routes for people to form families you know say in these communities uh, so for the old sort of tr- tried and tested strategies for bringing men and women together to form families, then to settle down in communities, to to invest in the lives of their children and the lives of their neighbors, you know, as those have broken down, we've seen um, the social fabric fray. I mean, that would be the that's the that's a simple simple version, not not that simple, I suppose, but a relatively simple version of the story.
0: Mm. And I, I did want to just spend a moment too on digital technology, which you say the Surgeon General yeah. actually covered quite well here. What what role is that playing?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is to my mind the 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 one real bright spot in the in the report not just reckoning very seriously with the the now you know I think overwhelming empirical evidence that there is a, effectively a is effectively a, a dose effect response between rates of consumption of digital technology especially social media and declining mental health and it's just very clear evidence of that especially especially among the young and especially among girls so adolescent girls have been hardest hit but this is this is true across the board And yeah, so reckoning very seriously with that evidence, but then also, also one of his one of the six kind of pillars of uh, of his proposed response, you know, to this crisis does involve reforming the digital technology environment. And he he proposes some 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 serious some some helpful and serious potential legislative changes that we might introduce. You know, for instance, requiring much greater data transparency from big tech companies about who is using their, their technology and how, and and also gesturing at least towards the possibility of, of imposing say nationwide uh, age restrictions on, on using these devices on the model of what, of, of uh, the law, that the state of Utah recently passed, which basically requires social media companies to set an age threshold for, for use to prevent preteens from using them, you know, or young, young teenagers. I mean, it's still, it's still probably too low <laughs> in my view, to be honest, but, but um, yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the, and again, the drivers here are, are complicated it's not i mean so just to some extent digital technology is a problem because of the opportunity cost of using it so people who are glued to their phones six hours a day are just missing out on interacting with other people face to face you know and in, in a, in a fuller orbed way which our, our species is adapted to to engage with others you know um but there also are there are some some pernicious dynamics that are that are internal to these platforms as well which i think are are we're just ill-suited for them psychologically, you know? So it's um it's the first time in history, you know, just for instance, that teenagers have been able to very precisely quantify uh, how much less they matter socially than all mm. of their friends, right? You can just look, you can see the, you can see follower counts, you can see likes, you know? Um, this is just not information that anybody needs to have really, you know, it's, it's very, it's a, and it's a, it's a sort of spoil system, you know? So, I mean, people who, the, the people who land at the top of the heap, the influencers or whatever, um, I mean, there's a, not saying i recommend this as a lifestyle either but you can see at least how it's short term you know this is a very attractive lifestyle but the reality is that the vast majority of users are left at the bottom feeling basically feeling left out you know i'm feeling i'm feeling quite marginalized so so yeah these are and i'm you know i should say i'm not like a i have a smartphone i'm not a i'm not a ludic by any means you know i i use twitter i mean it's it's um probably more than i should my my view <laughs> about this i guess is that we're we're sort of we are we are in the we are in the the phase of our relationship with digital digital uh, technologies, with smartphones and and social media, S- that's some, somewhat analogous to the uh, the pre seatbelt phase of the automobile. You know where and this just went on for decades. You know that people were driving driving cars, and there was just a sort of general sentiment that you know thirty five thousand automobile fatalities a year was just like the price of having cars, and kids are bouncing around, you know, off the windows in the backseat of the backseat of cars and you know, eventually we fix that problem, right? I mean, there are, there are sensible legislatively mandated changes that you can impose on these technologies that make them safer, especially for kids. So um, something like that is what we need, I think, for, for social media and smartphones as well.
0: Mm. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I I found this piece so fascinating because the approaches to loneliness so often um, are personal as opposed to collective. And, you know, I, I, I actually wrote a whole memoir about my own sort of crisis with loneliness. I was turning 40, I was single at that time. I did not have children, my work was quite, you know, isolating. And I went through just a ton of strategies to try to address it. And the conclusion I came into in my book is that this really is a collective problem and that we need to view it holistically. And it it really does seem like the human flourishing program takes that big, wide, holistic lens to it. I was watching a talk you gave some years ago. Um, I was watching it online, and you were talking about three components to flourishing, a life well-led, a life that is going well, and a life that contains joy and, and satisfaction. Can you flesh out that model a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. And that's I'll say that's cribbed. That model is cribbed from uh, Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian at Yale. I remember the, book, the name of the book. It might just be called Flourishing. Um it's a quick, great book. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's that's I think I think that is a helpful model. And I mean it, you know, it's there there are lots of ways of decomposing uh, a good life. I mean this is one one useful way of grouping uh, the the elements of a of a of a of a flourishing life. And I mean the basic idea is that these these are all these are three elements of a good life that we we value intrinsically and that are not reducible to each other. You know so that we all we all value uh, just to, I mean, to start with, with subjective, we all, we all value uh, subjectively satisfying experiences. You know, we all, we all value happiness. Everyone wants to be, everyone wants to experience moments of joy, moments of, of, of elation, you know, even just something as pleasant as eating a slice of cake, right? I mean, those are things that we value on their for their own sake. We also, we also intrinsically value a a life in which, I mean, the, what what both means by a life that's going well is something like a, a life in which, our efforts at, at skillful action are, are translating successfully, you know, into results that we value, you know, so a life in which we're, we're able to say to form for most people, not for everyone, but, you know, for most people a life in which you're, you're able to get married and have kids, you know, have a marriage that's satisfying and kids that love you and that grew up to be successful and thriving, you know, and mutatis mutatus, you know, same, same, same idea for work, say, you know, for other areas of your life. Right. And then, Third and and I think most most important and I think one slight liability of that scheme the threefold scheme you know life is going well life that feels feels good a life that's a life a life in which you're you're acting well I can't remember actually how I framed the both frames the third one but the uh the third the third one basically is about character that's about the kind of person you are you know and uh, the uh yeah so I do think that that uh, okay so here's the, here's the critical issue right we also value Uh, essentially being a good person right this is something that 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 matters not 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 just at least when we're thinking when we're thinking clearly uh, we value we value being a person of good character not simply for its its ability to translate into into some external results you know so like instrumentally it's good to be honest you know because that'll help you get ahead but we value virtue for its own sake That it's a that this is in in a sense is what it what a successful human life is like is, is not just having the apparent fruits of being loving or generous or honest or just, but but actually being those things, right? And uh, and the way and the reason I say that I, I think we, we, we need to actually construct a kind of kind of hierarchical relationship among these goods is that when push comes to shove, I think this is especially clear for parents, you know, you sort of realize that um like if you have to choose among goods in one of these domains, the the, the right thing to think, I mean at least this is I'll just say normatively, is to is to prioritize character, right? So if you have to choose between say keeping the, the the wallet you find on the street with all the money in it, you know, and spending it on things that will enhance your life in some objective way, and going out of your way to try to return it to the person who lost it, obviously you prioritize the you know being a just person, not not stealing, you know, ill-gotten gains, right? So virtue has a kind of trumping force, you know, in in my view, over over the other domains. So so that it's it's right actually, it's it's conducive to your flourishing to sacrifice happiness, say, or to sacrifice external goods in the service of of being the kind of person uh whose life is choice worthy. You know, that's that's actually the so there are complications here, but I do think that I do think that framework yeah is really useful just as a as a schematic way of, of sort of understanding the lay of the land. Yeah, and flourishing life.
0: Mm. And it's a good segue to the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Brendan, and that is on the Human Flourishing Program website, there are some evidence-based practices, you know, suggestions for improving the quality of your life. And these include practicing kindness and forgiveness and gratitude, uh, as well as getting and staying married and being of service Uh in your work life and volunteering in the community. Um, I have to say, this basically sounds like religion to me. And I'm not religious, but I am increasingly convinced that so much of what has gone wrong in our society has to do with this decline of faith and faith-based communities. I know you have a background in theology. Are we just essentially trying to fill the hole that has been left by this decline in religious participation?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, it's, we're sort of running, as a species, we're running a really interesting social experiment ourselves in a lot of ways. I mean, whole societies that are attempting to live for the first time, essentially, without what we think of as religious communities, you know? Uh, even the idea of, of uh, bracketing out religion as this sort of narrow segment of of human life, that's a relatively recent idea. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's a legacy of, of christianity more than more than anything else if you go back i mean the you know ancient greeks didn't really have even a word for religion in, distinct, in the distinct in the way we would describe it They had words for for cultic action you know and they've words for gods and that sort of thing but like everything everything was sort of religious all of life is pervaded by domestic life is pervaded by by the gods you know politics was was pervaded by the gods so yeah i think that the 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 big question i guess to my mind is whether it's possible and this is just an empirical question, you know, which will maybe we'll find out, but whether it's possible to to create institutions which which play the role that, that religious institutions traditionally have in, in human societies, but 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 which but which lack the sort of transcendent orientation that, that religions bring. And so I mean I, and, and the what's challenging here is that relig- religious communities like like other core institutions like marriage say or work, they don't just do one thing you know they they provide they provide social support but of course that matters you know they provide companionship that's great but they also provide uh, for most for most people especially people who participate in them you know sincerely and devoutly they provide deep sense of meaning and purpose a sort of organizing goal for your life uh, which is which is um, uh, not just consoling but also fortifying you know sort of helps you helps you carry through uh, challenging circumstances they also provide you know again for most people helpfully clear, moral guidance so it's really really useful to have i mean say just 10 really important rules you can remember <laughs> you know for instance right uh, so and this is um so there's, there's quite a bit of evidence for instance that that one one factor in in the protective effect against suicide that religious communities seem to to offer it's, it's very strong it's like an 84 84 reduction in suicide for for people who attend in 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 the united states at least for people who attend um services at least once a week compared to people who never attend and this is I mean the, the finding that's been been replicated a number of times in, in different in different data sets somewhat different effect sizes but always huge like that um so part of that has to do with social support almost certainly right you're just less lonely but also I mean the an, 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 another driver of that of that effect seems to be the fact that religious communities often teach quite explicitly that it's wrong to kill yourself that um uh, this is this is something which you know, I mean, which is a somewhat paradoxical idea in a way, you know, because you're, of course, once you, once you select like states that make suicide illegal, you know, if it's successful, it's obviously this it won't be anyone around to punish. But, but, you know, it seems as though internalizing this teaching matters, actually, you know, that it's, um and that, and that in a surprising way, it's actually the, the most compassionate thing communities can do uh, for their most vulnerable members is to give them really clear moral guidance and how to, how to live their lives, you know, that I sort of morally lax you know sort of uh, let a thousand flowers bloom every boutique lifestyle is great you know it's kind of kind of approach to life might be fine in general for people who have a lot of margin especially a lot of financial margin in their lives you know to sort of compensate for for missteps but people who don't have a lot of margin you know people for whom big mistakes can be like catastrophically life-altering um, really benefit actually it turns out the most vulnerable people really benefit from having just clear moral norms and in, in a way it's a the the sort of moral deregulation of our society is is um it's one of the best examples to my mind of the way that we've sort of like I mean it goes it's gone hand in glove with the the, the systematic reorganization of our economy in ways that basically benefit elites to the neglect of ordinary people you know that is, is a sort of and the so the the um just in the way that the the, the deregulation you know of um of, inter- of of international trade or the banking industry you know has been essentially a boon for for people who are already well off and a disaster for everybody else. Um, moral deregulation I think works in much the same way. It redounds to the benefit of people who are going to be okay anyway and uh, and actually ends up ends up making life harder for for people who you know who really could stand to have uh, yet yeah, clearer guidance, I guess is what I would say.
0: Well it's such an interesting point and um, you know thank you so much for this excellent essay at Compact and thank you for the conversation today. It was really great to uh, get to speak with you. Thanks Sarah. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.